Hello and welcome to the 31st edition of the Traveling Tube Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Friedel. this week, I'll be talking a little bit about my preparations for a winter cycling trip. Then I've got a conversation with Tim and Cindy Travis, who are about to start their eighth year on the road. And finally, we're off to Morocco, where Peter Gostolo gives us an update on his African cycling adventure. This week from the very snowy Netherlands. You know, there hasn't been so much cold weather here for many, many years, and normally the Canadian in me would be celebrating, but this big chill is closing in on a winter bike camping trip that Andrew and I have planned for next weekend. And the temperatures are getting close to minus 10 degrees Celsius some nights, so that means we've had to really reassess our normal touring gear. And we've had to do it on a budget because only one of us is working at the moment, so on Monday we went to Amsterdam to see what we could find with limited funds. The budget factor meant that we couldn't afford the brand new jackets that we would have liked. If money hadn't been an object, we probably would have gone for a nice downfill jacket or maybe something in Gore-Tex, but those are going for about $300. Instead, we found some waterproof shells in the winter sales for about $50 each, and we're going to put those over all kinds of layers of our existing clothes. We've also splurged on a thermos so we can have some hot drinks ready to go in the morning, and we bought two thin camping mats to go under our existing three-season Thermarest mats. In addition to all of that, we're actually going to borrow two sleeping bags from friends to add to the down ones we already have. Now the big question is, is all that going to be enough to keep us warm at night? We're definitely hoping so. If not, I've heard that the campgrounds have cabins. Maybe we can just sneak inside those in the middle of the night. In any case, we'll report back in a couple of weeks and let you know how we did. As I've been researching winter cycling, one blog I came across that I really enjoyed is called Up in Alaska. It's written by Jill, who says that she specializes in riding in horrible conditions. The worse, the better, she says, which I just love. And I found inspiration in her blog, especially one line where she says, in winter, the rides are so much harder and the rewards so much greater. If you want to check out Jill's blog, you'll find it at arcticglass.blogspot.com, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. We're staying in the United States with our feature interview this week. It's with the couple behind one of the longer-running cycle tours out there at the moment. Tim and Cindy Travis set off from their home in Arizona in 2002 and haven't looked back since. Many of you will know them through their website, downtheroad.org, and I caught up with them a few days ago as they take a break with Tim's family in Indiana, just before they fly off for the next leg of their adventure in India. I asked them to start by summarizing where they've been, for those of you who haven't been following their journey so far. We started in Arizona where we lived and left right outside our front door and stayed in the U.S. for a little while and headed south through Mexico and Central America. That was our first year. Then we spent a year in South America. Then after that, we spent a little more time with our family again in the States. And then we flew to Bangkok and traveled through Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. And then we did a big nine-month loop in China, which was fascinating. And we came back down through Laos, back to Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, 
Then we flew to Australia for a year and then to New Zealand for eight months. And then from there up to uh, my sister lives in Valdez. So we started in Valdez, Alaska and came down to Arizona last winter. Although we didn't stay in Prescott where we originally started, but stayed in Yuma. And then last summer we came across the States and now we're staying with Tim's family here in Indiana. That's an absolutely huge trip. How many miles or how many kilometers does it add up to so far? Oh, you know, our bike computers constantly are breaking, but we estimate about 10,000 kilometers a year, give or take. So about 70,000 kilometers so far? Yeah, it'd be eight years in March. So when you walked out your front door in 2002, did you know that you were getting into all of that? Or was it just, let's go for a year and see how it goes? What were your thoughts when you originally started? The original plan was for seven years, and we had saved up money for what we thought was seven years. But as we went, uh, the website started making money, and we wrote two books, and other things just kind of came along, and the, and the income meant we could go longer. And now you're planning to go indefinitely? Well, indefinitely is a big word, but we plan to go until we get tired of doing it. We say we have no plans to stop is a better way to put it. I, I want to go backwards even a little bit to just before you left, because I know that one of the things that is perhaps hardest for a lot of bike tourists is actually making the decision to go. So can you tell us a little bit about the decision-making process? How did that come about, and... Did you have a lot of anxiety before you left, or were you always sure that you were making absolutely the right decision to go touring? Tim is a dreamer. Tim is the planner, the big, the picture guy. And we were working in Arizona. I was working as a geologist. Tim was working as a special ed teacher. And he was dreaming about this round-the-world trip on a bike. And I never really took him serious for maybe a couple years. And we started saving money, and we started saving more and more money. And he said, hey, let's travel. And he kind of started getting me to think about it. And the turning point for me was uh, when I thought, we don't have children. And I thought, well, we already have everything we want. We already have our house. We have our bikes and car. And I really don't want any more than I want what I have. You know, I don't want to work a 40-hour, 60-hour-a-week job. And so finally, I just dawned on me, why not? And that pretty much is when we turned the corner and, and we decided to go and it took a couple more years of planning after that. And throughout all of that, did you ever have second thoughts or were you always very focused on that goal? Well, I, I you know, I tried to think it through and but once we made the decision to go, I never had any second thoughts and once we left, I have I have no regrets for leaving. Uh, I think back at some of the anxieties I had in the beginning, like being exposed because once you get out of a car and on a bike, you're very much exposed, and I thought I'd be vulnerable. And it turned out that it was really we were much more approachable. So I had to rethink a lot of things. I, I wanted to go from day one. The, the whole story of how we decided to go is in the first chapter of our first book, which is online for free. But it goes through the whole five-year scenario of how I talked Cindy into it and how I schemed to do this for years and how I eventually reached my goal, getting her to go. And once you were on the road, what were some of the most wonderful things that you discovered that differed maybe from your day-to-day -day life? What was it that really appealed to you about bicycle touring once you were on the road? Freedom of it, simplicity of it, and being able to meet people and, and being very international where you can go between borders without uh, any problems. And I just like the freedom of it. Cindy, do you have a favorite part? Yeah, I found being approachable like when we went through Mexico first. And the kids were so excited to see us come into town and would run up to us and just chitter-chatter and just be excited. 
And I, I found that, that being right there with people, the locals, and meeting people right where they lived was very, very exciting and rewarding and very eye-opening. And what about some of the best places that you've been? You've, you've seen an incredible amount of places. Is it possible even to pick out two or three highlights? Well, I, I divide places in, into places I'd like to move to and places I like to visit because there's a difference. Places we'd like to visit for me would be um, Argentina I liked a lot and China. And why did you like those destinations? Uh, Argentina because they uh, I, I like the culture. They eat a lot of steak and I like the music and the you can camp and it's the water's clean. And in a lot of these countries, the water's dirty and it's not so, so great for camping because it's kind of dirty. But Argentina is very pristine like Alaska. And China I like because it's such a unique and distant culture from our own. Um, the Chinese, even it's even much further away from our culture than Thailand or uh, Vietnam. It's, China is its own world and it's so different and so exotic. Did you have any communication issues in China though? Because the language again is so different or were you able to use maybe miming with your hands and other techniques to get by there? It's one of the places we realize that people do not think the same because we would mime and they wouldn't understand what we were trying trying to say. So we really did have to learn a few words of, you know, where's a hotel and where's a restaurant, that kind of thing. Uh, a little bit more than, say, Latin America, which was a little bit more Western culture, where you could use, you know, they understood, you know, that we needed a hotel more than they did in China. And was China one of your favorites as well, Cindy, or did you have other places that you enjoyed? Uh, China was fascinating, uh, but uh, my geology background, one of my favorite things that we saw was the Perito Moreno Glacier in Argentina, and it was starting to fall because of the phenomena of the... Uh, uh, lakes getting higher and pushing a hole through the glacier and creating a void for all the ice to fall into was a fascinating sight. And I, I love all the volcanoes we've been to. So I kind of look at the world from a geologic standpoint, and I really enjoy just looking at all the different types of geomorphology. Do you ever get tired of touring? I, I know that for a lot of people, you know, they go out and they enjoy their few weeks or months on a bike tour, but then they're really ready to get home and get back to their home comfort. So how does this work on a long-term basis when you're gone for so long? How does that change how you tour? The way we keep from getting tired on the road for so many years is uh, I think our pace is a lot slower than other people's. And I don't mean the pace on the bike, the speed we ride, but the how fast we move through a country is really relaxed. And the other thing is about every 18 months, we'll take a few months off and we'll work on a book or we'll stay somewhere. And we've done that in Bariloche, Argentina, in Malaysia, in New Zealand, in Alaska, and now we're here in Indiana with my sister. Is it the same sort of philosophy that carries you through when events turn against you, whether that's bad weather or maybe you're not feeling well? I mean, I'm assuming that because of your budget that, of course, it depends on which country you're in, but you can't necessarily just take a hotel if a rainstorm blows in. or. Well, we can't afford to camp in all countries. Uh, so say we're in North America and a we wake up and it's raining, we don't go. We just stay in the tent that day because we have lots of time. And we always say that's the biggest gift that we have is time. So it really slows your pace down. So if we wake up and the weather's bad, we stay put and we wait for good weather. And only a few times we had to really deal with bad weather because of this pace. Is there one particular time that stands out where you really got hit with a terrible weather situation? Oh, oh yeah, I remember. Just recently in, in Nebraska, 
we were hit with a lightning storm. We, we went to sleep. It was warm. It was clear. And we didn't put the fly on the tent. And in the middle of the night, a, a lightning and rainstorm hit us with 50-mile-an-hour winds. And it was just, it was comical looking back on it, but it was hard to get the fly on because the winds were so high. And uh, so that that stands out in my mind. As far as weather dealing with the trip, we, we weren't riding in that storm in Nebraska. We were camping. And I don't mean to pick on Canada because I dearly love the country of Canada. But when we took the ferry from Prince Rupert over to Fort Harding and Vancouver Island, we stayed put one day because of the rain, but we just couldn't do it any longer, and it rained for seven entire days, the entire length of Vancouver Island, and we feel like we got cheated out of it. Oh, no. <laughs> it is known for uh, rain in that part of the world, I'm afraid. <laughs> it, it looks like it would have been a beautiful place to ride. I mean, it, had the weather been nice, we might have stayed a month there, but we, when the weather's bad, we do either stay put or get through it. And I want to go back to what Cindy was saying just a moment ago about lightning. Now, that strikes a real chord with me because I think lightning is maybe one of the real fears that I actually have. I can remember a few times when we were in our tent and a lightning storm would roll through and I would just be rigid in the tent with fear. How do you deal with lightning? Do you just ride it out? Usually if we, we hit lightning on the bike, we stop and put up the tent. And like that one particular time, Nebraska, we just hopped in the tent. We were actually really glad that our stuff wasn't really wet and we were warm and dry. And Tim Tim manages to stay calm and keeps me calm. But I, I just grin and bear it and know that I'll get through it. That's just how I do it. Is there anything that either of you feel particularly worried about? Is there one thing that you're still uneasy with after all these years, or have you come to terms with just about every situation going after so much experience? I, I do enjoy being gone for a long time, but I worry that we're gone so long that we're losing the, uh, the ability to relate with people back home. You know, we've seen so much now, and then we talk to somebody at home, and our experience level is so different. It's, I'm, I'm worried that we're losing the ability to, to relate with people. And how can you combat that, or can you, do you think? We're trying to stick in the mainstream as much as we can. We try to listen to the news every day, and we try to you know, see ourselves as just regular people that are on a bike trip as opposed to um, being just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I suppose it's just one of the hazards, though, of, of long-term touring, isn't it, that you do spend your time in such a different reality from most people. It's hard for that not to affect you. Right. I mean, people bring up a country just in conversation, and we've been there, and it's just hard to, to relate with them. It's hard to explain. Yeah, I, I can sympathize with that, though, because we certainly felt a lot of of that when we were coming back from our tour as well. Sometimes you'd be talking to people and you just didn't even know where to start in a conversation because you didn't necessarily have anything in common. Your lives were just so different. You guys were gone for a long time and you had an incredible trip and I followed as much of it as I can and subscribed to your podcast. And I could kind of hear it in your podcast as you went that the same kind of thing was coming up. Yeah, it's, uh, it was also maybe one of the reasons why we stopped, actually, in, in the end, because we weren't sure if we wanted to get quite that separated. You know, we wanted to come back and see how we would reintegrate and, and then take our decisions from there, and that's still a learning process. Yeah, with us, I think we're past the point of no return, and we can't think of any other life, so we're going to just work on switching lives and relating with people better as when we need to. I'd, I'd like to change the direction of the interview a little bit now and talk about equipment. You're definitely not in the ultralight category for obvious reasons. Can you give us a summary of how much you carry on your bikes and what kind of things are in your bags? Right. We're definitely not ultralight. What I tell people is it it is a lot. We carry a fair amount. It, 
and it's a lot to travel with, but this is everything we own. And so when it's when you look at it that way, it's not a lot to own um, in life. But we have a few extra things. We each have a computer. That's happened in the last 12 months or so, um, and I think that's kind of excessive. But And we always have a, a, a bit more clothes than most people because you get tired of wearing the same three things over and over. And we always have a book or two with us because that's that's how you, what you do at home. I always have a shortwave radio because I want to hear something in English every day, the news of some sort. So it's kind of like we're sitting at home in our family room watching TV. And, so that it brings some normality to it. I've added some comfort things. Like when we first started traveling, I didn't have a pillow, and that sounds kind of small, you know. It's, but carrying the pillow is a comfort thing, and one of the things that makes it easier to keep going for a long amount of, of time for me is to uh, allow some of those comforts that just kind of make you comfortable, like a pillow, carrying maybe some extra lotion, I, I and and something like that, or uh, cook. You know, we have a lot of cook pots because I end up cooking with two or three different pots, and and that might be more than what most people carry. But when you cook your own food for two years on the road, you kind of want variety. <laughs> Is that three or so pots, but only one stove so far? It's one stove and about four pots. Okay. <laughs> Don't give her any ideas. We'll be carrying another stove here. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. <laughs> I, I have to say that was always my problem, is it? I could manage with the two pots that I had and the one frying pan, but then I always ended up with something sort of cold at the end because I didn't have two stoves to work with. You know, it was you had to do one dish and then the next dish. <laughs> and I always thought if I was going to buy a real luxury, it was going to be a second stove. Sometimes she gets me to build her a little fire, and then we'll make that into our second stove. But that's you can't always have a fire. <laughs> Not always, unfortunately. In all of the things that you carry, is there one piece of equipment, aside from the bikes, of course, that you particularly value? Well, this may sound funny, but I really, really like having the bell on my bike. Tim and I communicate with the bell. If I didn't have the bell, I, I think I, I would be at a loss because we don't always travel next to her and. And so we use the bell to communicate, and we use the bell to let other people know when we're there. And it's funny because I never had one before the bike tour, but I end up using it to communicate a lot more than I used to. If you want to know bell communication, two dings means you're off, and three dings means you're on. Off, off the bike to, to go for a pee, or what? Or not on my rear wheel. See, that way I don't know. I know she's behind me or not. So if I hear three dings, I know she's right behind me. But if she's... If she pulled over or for some reason stopped or she's getting further behind me, I'll hear two dings, which means to slow down. Because you're working as partners as well, do you split the gear evenly? Or I know some people, if it's a, a man and a woman, sometimes the woman carries a little bit less. How do you decide who carries what? Tim is uh, a bigger, stronger rider than I am. And in the beginning, he carried way more than I did. And right now, he still carries way more than I do. Uh, he carries about 75% of our load, and I carry the other 25%. And, and when we're on the flats, I draft to stay with Tim. And when we're climbing, we, we separate the weight so that we climb at the same speed. And we have an ongoing joke that if I slow down, he takes the weight. And if he slows down, I just wait for him. <laughs> Tim, that's a huge split, 75-25. Does that put an incredible pressure on your bike? Yeah, I, I I travel with tandem grade rims and tandem grade things when I can, and I'm quite a big guy if you ever met me. And then my load's big, so I just get heavy duty everything to carry it. When you say tandem grade 
rims, what do you mean? A rim meant to be on a tandem bicycle. But what would the difference be? Are we, are we talking a number of spokes or? No, I use a 36-spoke rim. It's just they're super heavy duty. If you look in a tandem catalog, you'll see. And can you talk a little bit about the bikes that you're riding? I know that you've ridden Kogas for the last few years and you're in the midst of changing bikes. And I, I know that you can't yet tell us exactly which ones you're going to be using in the future. But can you maybe talk generally about what you look for in a touring bike? Well, yeah, after this many years, I'm pretty okay with either having a straight or flat bar that doesn't bother me uh, aluminum or steel that doesn't bother me they both have their pluses and minuses I do like a 26 inch wheel and not for any performance reason but because you can find tires and tubes and stuff almost everywhere um, you, you can certainly do a big long trip on a 700C but just personally I like a 26 inch wheel and after that it's not all bikes come in a big enough size for me so it's got to fit well that's probably the first and foremost thing a bike has to be and since I'm big not everybody makes a, a bike big enough for me so I have to be concerned with that and then just I, I, I like to get really strong good wheels built up because that's the probably the biggest headache everyone on a bike tour has is if, if they start breaking spokes yeah I think uh, hand built wheels or maybe one of the best things you can spend your money on. I still don't I don't know why, but they've never been able to make a machine that can build a wheel properly. And do you have a favorite wheel builder that sends you wheels when you need them, or do you just find people on the road? Yeah, I know how to build wheels myself, but but I don't like to do it, and I don't have the equipment. But I do. I can pretty much tell when somebody knows how to build a wheel or not. It's not rocket science. Um, we've had wheels built in a number of different places, and I've been pretty happy with all of them. So as long as they're pretty up to snuff, and you can tell by the the truing stand they have and things like that. I think you can get a pretty good wheel built in a number of places. And have you had any major equipment failures while you've been on the road? Um, our laptop died about a year ago. That was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty major. Disaster. Well, we had it for five years. We carried the same laptop for five years. It was our second one of the trip, and so we were now on the third laptop. But. No, not really. We've never had to uh, flag down a truck and get in it or flag down a bus and get in it. You know, just the typical flat tire and breaking of the chain is probably the most traumatic because you know you're going to fall. <laughs> yeah, we, we get flats, we break chains, we break cables. Every now and then, you know, you use a cable long enough, it'll break, and you got to put a new one in. You wear brake pads out, and you got to replace them. Just the standard stuff that even a someone commuting to work is going to deal with. And what do you carry in terms of tools and supplies on your bike, and how much do you just get from the next bike shop? Well, it all, as you know, it, it all depends on where you are. If you're riding across China, then you need to have a bit more stuff with you because the bike shops aren't going to have things. And I would assume India is like that, that we're going to have to have more spare parts. Here, since we spent last summer riding across the U.S., um, you can pretty much let things wear out and buy them as you need them in bike shops and things. So I would say we usually have um, three tubes. If we're in a remote place, we will have one small folding tire, and that saved us twice in the almost eight years we've been on the road. Tell us about a situation where it saved you. We were in the Salar de Uni, the world's biggest salt lake in Bolivia, and we were in the middle of middle of it, and there's no trail or anything. So and without a GPS or something, you... There's no way to see where you're going. And I, I slipped the sidewall out of my tire. And if we didn't have the spare tire, I don't know, Cindy could have rode off to get help, but she would have never found me again. It's like being on the ocean in a rowboat. So if I didn't have that spare tire, I'm not exactly sure what we do. I can't walk, you know, 100 kilometers to get to the next place. And, but then and Cindy couldn't have gone and got help and come back to get me. So it would have been a real problem. And the other time was in Inner Mongolia, China. Um, we were in the middle of nowhere. We probably could have walked out of that 
situation or eventually had a truck go by or something. My last question for you is what's in the works for the future? I know you're heading off to India, so tell us about what's coming up. Well, we just got our ticket yesterday to India, and I think we're going to start in Darjeeling. And I don't, we haven't picked a route and all that yet. We're being pretty bad about it. I just got some guidebooks the other day. But in, in the next four years or five years, we plan to visit a good part of India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Tibet again. What am I missing? Bhutan. Cindy would really like to get into Bhutan, but I know there's problems with that. Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. And if things settle down, Pakistan. And uh, uh, unfortunately, being American, then we don't get a visa for Iran, but there's ways around that. And, and uh, just visit that area and then probably come home again for another visit. That sounds wonderful. You must be excited to get on that plane. Yeah, we're, at the moment we're finishing up our third book, so we're on the computers working away for 12 hours a day. So the thought of being free again, I can dream the world, is very appealing at the moment because we're working an awful lot to finish up this book. And when is the third book due out? Probably in the end of February, early March. We're, we're leaving at the end of March, and it's going to be on Southeast Asia Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Wonderful. And do you want to give your web address so people know where to get that book? Yeah, our web address is downtheroad.org, O-R-G. I have a Facebook page under Tim Travis that I don't entirely know how to use. I have a Twitter account under downtheroad.org, and I certainly don't know how to use that. Uh, that's a big mystery to me. And other than that, everything people want to know about us, they can find on the website. Tim and Cindy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, and safe travels. Thank you, Thanks. and, and keep up the podcasting, because we subscribe to it and listen to everyone. Tim and Cindy Travis. I really wish them all the best in India, and if you want to check out their website, it's downtheroad.org. Well, normally at this point in the show, I'd say goodbye, but I had a little bit of a surprise as I was putting the show together this week. I had the chance to hook up with Peter Gostolo, who's currently in Morocco. Now, some of you may already be familiar with Peter. He's on a big cycle journey from England all the way down to South Africa and then possibly even on to South America. Who knows? Since Peter's about to head off to Mauritania and we're really not sure what the internet connection is going to be like as he goes down through Africa, I thought it would be a wonderful chance to get in touch with him and see how the trip's been so far. Europe was a luxury as I expected it would be in comparison to, to arriving in, in Morocco. I mean, Morocco is so close to Europe, but it, it always feels so distant. Everything feels so much more um, exotic and traditional. And, and Europe, um, I took my time on small roads uh, and camping while cycling through in late summer and early autumn. So it was a great time to, to be outside. And I arrived in Morocco oh, nearly two months ago now, and I've spent quite a lot of time on small roads, small pieced roads up in the mountains. Uh, I mean, my memories from the last journey, when I look back, it was always being up in the mountains that I have fond memories of. So uh, I really took the opportunity to, to get up into the high mountains in Morocco because of all the countries that, that come south from here. There's nothing uh, in terms of mountains like there are in, in Morocco. So... A lot of good times up in the mountains, and it's quite cold now. I mean, the last month there's been some uh, quite heavy weather, and so the, the tops, uh, the, the high peaks are snow-covered. And I was up in the snow several weeks ago, and I was in good spirits, but um, I'm glad that I, I wasn't going to be up there for too much longer. Uh, I think, like most cyclists, uh, 
there's sort of like a limit where it, it gets a bit too cold and when your fingers feel like they're about to drop off and your toes <laughs> you need to jump off on the bike and start jumping around but did you actually plan your route out on these pieces or did you just sort of see oh that's a nice track over to the left i think i'll go that way yeah pretty much like that the map i've got of morocco is fairly accurate um initially i thought the red roads were just going to be really busy but i've been on some of the big red highways and they're actually quite empty i mean experience of cycling in Asia compared to how it's going to be in Africa. It's a lot of the big roads here are pretty traffic free. But when I look at a map and I plan my route and I look at a destination and I see a small white line kind of wiggling its way between mountains. And I think that's the road I'm going to take. And I take it and then I to a village and there's another white line. And I say, oh, I'll take this one as well. So in all in all these situations, you know, the, the magic ingredient is time. Uh, you know, I meet a lot of people who they say, oh, I would have loved to have gone that way. I just didn't have the time. Uh, and they, they always focus on the destination. Um, and they think, well, Marrakesh is 300 kilometers away, so I'm going to be there in three days. And I, and I think, well, it's 300 kilometers, but there are these amazing mountains and roads between where you are here and, and, and the destination. So as the journey goes on, uh, I'm more aware of the fact that time is so important. And it seems such a, an obvious thing to say, but um, people often mistake that when they're out on the road. You've had some kind of funny experiences trying to find your way through these little pieces, though, haven't you? I think I popped onto your blog and you were uh, relating stories about people who were telling you it was impossible or very, very hard, and then at one point you had to turn around. I mean, <laughs> well, well take, yeah, taking taking local advice is is always um, worthwhile and recommended, and. You know, and like other people who like a challenge and adventure, when somebody says you can't do it because it's too difficult or impossible, it, it only sort of spurs you on and inspires you more. So I left this uh, small village in, in the mountains in the high atlas of Morocco uh, with sort of half a dozen people from the shops where I just bought two days supplies worth of food, sort of laughing at my back as I as I pedaled along this small asphalt road, which um stopped after 40 kilometers and it had been raining a lot it was still raining uh, and the road completely stopped and in front of me there was just a mud track and i sort of built up speed and i pedaled onto this mud track and within about 100 meters the pipe just totally stopped and the wheels were completely clogged up with mud um i put my feet down um and then i picked my feet up with a sort of five kilos of mud and i was kind of stuck and i sort of thought i looked around in this howling wind and driving rain and thought there's probably like half a dozen shepherds on the mountains around all laughing at me. <laughs> it took me about 20 minutes to, to carry the bike back onto the asphalt. Um, and it was kind of a, like a lesson learned. Um, memorable, I was, um, you know, it was the middle of the day. It wasn't at the end of the day. And uh, it took took a few hours to get the mud back off the bike. But uh, it's also kind of a lesson for, for how things are going to be through Africa because there's going to be times where I'm on small roads and, and during the rainy season they're going to be impassable. So, um, you know, I never say never, but I think I think I made the right decision <laughs> to to come back rather than go along that road. And when you went back through the village the next day, did the locals sort of have a giggle at you or did you go by really quickly with your head down or...? <laughs> Uh, this is, yeah, that's what I planned to do. I cycled into this village and I thought I'm just going to speed right through it. And somebody who I'd seen the day before was was so keen for me to stop. So so I did and uh, and I explained what had happened. And there was no sort of laughing. Uh, it was just more of a sort of expectancy that that was going to happen as if like we knew it would happen. We knew we'd, we'd see you come back. So 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was quite a humorous episode, and it delayed me by a couple of days, but I wasn't in a rush to, to get anywhere. And I, Well, this was just before Christmas, actually, and I had the idea that I'd, I'd reach a town which had uh, a little bit of sort of activity going on, and, um, and the humorous episode there was I arrived in a small town well, it was actually a, quite a large town because it was marked in bold on the map, it, but it wasn't in any guidebook. And I thought, well, there's a bank there, but unfortunately the bank didn't have an ATM machine. And uh, I was eating sardine sandwiches on Christmas Day lunchtimes. Um, a memorable day, yeah. And someone actually lent you some money, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did at the hotel. This is the thing about Morocco. Uh, I mean, the hospitality is, is amazing. The people are very friendly. Um, and uh, the hotel manager, I sort of explained that uh, I'd run out of money and he sort of looked at me a little bit bemused but you know I was leaving all the things in the hotel and, and uh, simple act of, of kindness he, he lent me 10 euros and I, I jumped on a bus for, for it was only 20 kilometers to the nearby town and I was back several hours later yeah another lesson you know you, you spend a lot of time on the road and simple things like food and water and money and accommodation, you know, I, I'm familiar with sort of planning, but there are always times, because you're always cycling on in places you haven't been to before, um, where you assume you know something because you've experienced it somewhere else before, but um, everywhere is different, so you learn from your mistakes and remember it the next time. And you're heading south when? So I'm returning to Agadir, which is where my bicycle is at the moment. I just came up to Rabat to, to collect the Mauritanian visa, and from Agadir I, I will pedal south pretty much straight away. Um, there's a Japanese cyclist I met about a week ago who I've asked to, to sort of slow his pace down if he can wait for me and we can cycle south together through the Western Sahara and, and the Mauritania. So, yeah, within the next week or two I hope to be... Um, getting quite far south in Morocco. Wonderful. Well, Peter, all the best for your trip further south, and maybe we'll catch up with you a few countries down the road. Yeah, great to speak to you again. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks very much to Peter, who joined us all the way from Rabat in Morocco, and we hope that tailwinds speed him all the way along to South Africa. If you want to check out Peter's blog, or maybe make a donation to the malaria charity that he's raising funds for, you can find him at thebigafricacycle.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's it for this week. I hope you have a wonderful January and that you're getting out there and enjoying some bike riding despite the possibly cold temperatures, assuming you're not in Australia. And we'll speak to you again very, very soon with more bike touring stories to come.